for a choice of the nation our chieftain so brave and so true and we'll go for the great reformation for Lincoln and Liberty too we'll go for the son of Kentucky the hero who drew him through the pride of the sucker so lucky Whereas here her heretofore, states and nations have tolerated slavery. Recently, in the first in the world, an attempt has been made to construct a new nation upon the basis of and with the primary and fundamental object to maintain, enlarge, and perpetuate human slavery. Therefore, resolve that no such embryo state should ever be recognized by or admitted into the family of Christian civilized nations, and that all Christian civilized men everywhere should, by awful, awful means, resist to the utmost such recognition or admission. So that was Abraham Lincoln as uh, a proposed resolution proposed on April 15th, 1863. Um, that basically uh, was a little bit of a foreign policy, right? Uh, established sometime after the, well, a few months after the, the Emancipation Proclamation was, was uh, finalized on January 1st, 1863. Um, of course, Lincoln in 1863 was very very concerned about uh, European powers recognizing the Confederacy and uh, by establishing the US as on the right side of history uh, he had hoped it seems to have prevented that and, and obviously no European powers did recognize the no major European powers recognized the Confederacy so anyways um welcome to this podcast this this episode will look at the writings of Abraham Lincoln in 1863. It's part of my larger series on the writings of Abraham Lincoln, and, and that itself is part of a larger series on 19th century political writing that I've engaged in for the last few months. So welcome, welcome to, to my podcast. I urge you to, if you're just joining us, to go listen to some of my earlier episodes on, on Lincoln so you can kind of get a sense of what I'm doing here. Um, uh, so 1863, of course, a very, very important year in, in American history. It is the year that the Emancipation Proclamation was, was formally established. We talked about that in the last episode. It was actually originally written in 1862, uh, but it would not take effect. It was basically, Lincoln kind of issued the formal Emancipation Proclamation on, on the 1st of January, 1863. But that's not all that, that happened, of course. It was a, a turning point in the war for the Union, the victories at Vicksburg, the vi victories at Chattanooga uh, near Atlanta, and the victories at Gettysburg you know, made, made defeat of the Confederacy essentially inevitable from that point forward. We see the rise of Ulysses S. Grant to, to leadership of, of the army due to his victory at Vicksburg. Um, what else do we have? We have the passage of the Homestead Act. We have the but we also have the rising opposition to the war um, at home and Lincoln's concerns. They're still military and they'll remain military throughout his, his life, of course, but uh, they do start to get more complicated by the political realities of life in the United States in 1863. After over a year of war, after frustrations and defeats, a growing uh, the Democratic Party in the North kind of gained a new resurgence uh, by pursuing peace. And that became the main political enemy of Lincoln in the last couple of years of his life. He, of course, defeats it in his reelection bid in 1864. But it was, you know, he certainly had his doubts throughout 63 and 64. Um, and so a lot of his writings from this period 
deal with efforts to defend the Emancipation Proclamation from uh, racists who didn't want the war to be one to end slavery, and the and the peace party in the North, the, the Democrats who who maybe claim to support the war effort and support the government, but at the same time seem to support peace talks, and, and Lincoln tried to expose their, their hypocrisies. Um, so like with the last episode, you know, there's so many documents. I think this actually might be the largest section, um, the beefy, the meatiest year in this volume. This, the second volume of Library of America's collection of Lincoln's writings cover 1859 to 1865, 1859 to 1865. And I think this is the longest of all of, all of them, if you just break it up year by year. Um, and so I'm not going to look at every single document here. There's no really reason to. A lot of them overlap and deal with similar topics. But, but like with the previous years, I want to focus on a few, few issues. Um, and they're actually going to be quite similar to what I talked about in the last episode. That's going to be, you know, Lincoln as commander-in-chief. Lincoln's, um, particularly Lincoln's frustrations with the aftermath of the Gettysburg campaign. Um, but just generally, how was he as a commander in chief? It was a question I started asking last time. You know, was it good for the Union Army that Lincoln was so involved in the war effort? And it's one of the reasons the Union succeeded in the war at the end. In the end, was was it because of Lincoln's military um, strategy, his brilliance, his his ability to to be a real leader, a wartime leader, something that previous presidents did not did not do. Um, so we'll look at that. We'll also look at the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation, both in terms of what it meant for ensla formerly enslaved men and women, uh, freed, freed men and women, ones who ran away, uh, especially when the Emancipation Proclamation opened up the door to mobilizing black soldiers. And that, of course, helps make the Civil War a revolutionary moment in American history. That aftermath, but also the aftermath in terms of politics, as more and more Americans started to oppose Lincoln for for kind of turning the war into something else, right? And of course, we kind of culminate that discussion, I think, with the Gettysburg Address. Um, I'm, I'm certain you've all read that before or listened to renditions of it. Um, I, I don't know how much I can add to our understanding of the Gettysburg Address. That's not my intention here. People have written whole books about this thing. But, but you know, the most common interpretation of the Gettysburg Address is it, it really clarified what the war was about in new terms, right? from being just a war to save the Union to, to what that Union would be about and what would, what would be the nature of that country. Um, the, the new birth of freedom is, is the line often focused, yeah, often highlighted there. Um, so the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation is, is the second issue. Uh, we also have some more clarity, I think, on, on something I've been hinting at in previous episodes, and that is Lincoln as an empire builder. Lincoln as someone who's engaged in the politics of empire, whether it's through the Homestead Act or through Indian removal or issues like this. You know, the, the Civil War was fought, you know, between the North and the South, but the United States was also engaged in conflict with Indians and engaged in an ongoing process of, of wars with the Indians, something that would just continue a decade after the Civil War ends, more than a decade, really, you know, for the rest of the century. So the United States as an empire, and that really comes clear in his State of the Union, the State of the Union of 1863. Um, what else here? Oh, a little bit more about his views on capital punishment and and the appeals he, he engaged in. Um, part of that's tied to his commander-in-chief role because often he was 
pardoning people who were sentenced to death under military courts. So that was, yeah, yeah the, that, that jurisdiction. And I guess the last topic I'd want to highlight as we start to go through these documents would be the whole issue of, of Reconstruction. That's clear and clear in Lincoln's mind. He starts talking about Reconstruction a little bit. bit. And of course, one of the big issues in Reconstruction history, one of the big questions is, what would Lincoln's Reconstruction have been like? We, we don't really have a full picture of that. We have some of his statements that he gave towards the end of the war about what process there would be for reintroducing these states and allowing these people to be returned to, to full civilian life or civic life you know, after the war. Um, now, the normal interpretation is that Lincoln had a very soft view of Reconstruction, something that was opposed by the radical Republicans who, who wanted to make the Civil War a social revolution. It was becoming that, in effect, in the South. But they wanted to, to have the federal government take a leading role in that, and, and they wanted Reconstruction on the terms of, of social equality for freedmen. Um, and that becomes, when Lincoln's, of course, assassinated, you have a conservative president, Andrew Johnson, a, a Southerner, a former slaveholder, who pushes forth a very, very soft form of presidential reconstruction. And then you get fighting between the radical Republicans and the president leading to an impeachment and essentially Congress taking authority for reconstruction on their own. Um, very, very important and interesting history. And it's a history I think all Americans need to, to review and think more about um, in this period. Uh, but Lincoln starts to talk about it. And there's actually parts of the country that are that are ready to be reconstructed already as the war is still going on. We have West Virginia, um, never really seceded. Those were loyalist states from the beginning, or loyalist counties from the beginning. But you have uh, Louis, uh, Louisiana, you have Tennessee. Uh, those would be the first air, first states kind of fully under Union control in the in by by 1863. And then the question is, what happens to um, former Confederates there? What happens to you know, the, the government, how will the state government re be reconstructed and all that. So we're going to have to start thinking about reconstruction a little bit. That, that's, I guess, the fourth point. But boy, there's a lot of documents here. Um, well, but we'll, we'll do what we, we can to get through this in a, in a reasonable amount of time. Um, if you have the volume, uh, the, you, if you have this particular volume of the Library of America, I, I do recommend it. If you want to have a good window into Lincoln's writings, it's a great collection. I have a few Maybe in the last episode, I'll say some of my concerns or, or what I think is the limitations of this collection, but we'll get to that. Um, all right, uh, before getting into the documents, so I just want to talk about the military context, the campaigns, what's going on on the battlefield in 1863, if, if you've forgotten your Civil War history. Um, as I did, you know, there's always a split between like the Eastern campaign and the Western campaign. Right, and, and especially as we saw last in the last episode, in 1862, a lot of successes for the Union in the West, but a lot of failures in the East. Right, The beginning of 1863 looks like much the same way, where you're going to have uh, major successes in the West, um, land being taken, the, the, eventually the Mississippi River being fully occupied by the Union by July 4th. That's when Vicksburg... Uh, surrenders. That's the last kind of Confederate holding in the Mississippi River. That splits the Confederacy into two. Um, not long after that, you have the Battle of Chickamauga, which was a, a bloody affair. Um, 
and actually a Confederate victory, um, but it, it did set the context for the Atlanta campaign, which um, worked out better for the Union by the fall of 1863 when you have the Chattanooga campaign, fighting around the city of Chattanooga. Ends up with the Union victory by the end of the year. Um, that, that whole region is occupied by the Union. Basically, the Confederacy in Tennessee has, has collapsed, and that, that opens up the door for the seizure of Atlanta, the next major effort in the anaconda strategy of dividing up the South and then squeezing it. Um, so that's the main um, battles in the Western campaign. It would be the Vicksburg campaign, uh, Battle of Chickamauga, and then the Battle of Chattanooga. Uh, in the East, there's, there's really only two major battles to speak of. Of course, a lot of, of, of smaller ones, but, you know, for your, your average, you know, quick overview of history, there's, there's two. One's a, a Union defeat, one's a Union victory. Um, the first of these was the Battle of Chancellorville. Uh, it took place on May 1st. Um, and yeah, it was a Confederate victory again, leading one to a, yet another more frustration by Lincoln to leading to a command change in the Army uh, of the Potomac. Um, but not long after that, the Battle of Chancellorville, Lee decides to try to invade uh, the North. And he does this for a couple reasons. One is he, apparently he wanted to have his troops feast off of um, farms in Pennsylvania or Maryland instead of in Virginia give some relaxation to those those farmers, um, or at least give them a little bit of um, rest from the exploitations of the marauding armies. That's how, that's how armies fed themselves, um, even into the modern era, basically exploiting the local peasant farmer population. That was part of the goal. He also wanted to take advantage of growing peace sentiment in the North. So by invading the North, put pressure on Lincoln maybe to negotiate some kind of peace. That was the, that was the hope. Of course, that campaign ends uh, with, or culminates with uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, a three-day battle fought in Pennsylvania, uh, a major Confederate defeat, and then, um, then Lee had to go back to Virginia, uh, pursued by a Union Army that did not, in Lincoln's view, do enough to kind of finish the job. Um, but that sets the context for the battles of 1864, which are going to be um, brutal and bloody and, and kind of much more of a war of attrition is going to pursue a, like where both sides kind of hunker down for what's going to be a long and, and bloody fight. Um, but that's what's happened on the military front during, during this year. So um, onto these documents. All right, let's start. Uh, obviously, the first document will be the final Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it had been written before, but <clears throat> uh, back in September of 1862, but finally, finally kind of issued fully on the first of the year. So this is just like a form of formality. There is some details here that are important. I don't think they were highlighted in like the first announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation from September, and that is the... The question of mobilizing um, black black troops. Um, Lincoln wrote here, I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and a man vessels of all sorts in, in said service. I act, and upon this act, sincerely believe to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity. End quote. It's very clear that part of Lincoln's motivation in the Emancipation Proclamation was to uh, 
was the feeling that the war could only be won by doing this. One, it would give the South less to fight for, and it would allow the mobilization of these troops. I, I guess it was about 200,000 overall uh, black troops were mobilized. Now, this talks about them in just like manning forts, doing labor, manning ships. They will have a major combat role by the end of the war, so that, that focus changes changes by the end. And that, that, I think, is very important to the politics of Reconstruction. Many of those black Civil War veterans went back to their homes after the war and, and helped be leaders in the black communities that were created in the in the in the South during during the Reconstruction era. Now, there's a couple documents early in January uh, that begin to really, if they're not directly about Reconstruction, they're about issues that are going to come up more and more. And that is, like for instance, as territory gets reclaimed, right, Tennessee maybe, or, or places in Virginia, wherever, or, or Louisiana, you're going to have, you know, maybe women whose husband is fighting in the war, right? She may want her son back, and she may, but she's under kind of union sovereignty at that point. And she may, you know, claim not to be, or like maybe say my son was drafted or my husband was drafted. He didn't want to serve. He's not a Confederate, right? What do you do with these kind of characters? Do you give them full civic rights? Uh, or or are they still sort of enemies? You know, this, this question comes up a lot um, and, it, and it becomes a bigger issue that Lincoln has to deal with. And so he writes this letter, Lincoln writes this letter to Samuel Curtis. This is January 2. And he's talking about this guy, um, Some a Dr. McFetters, I guess, is his name. He says, the doctor showed me a copy of the oath which he said is taken, which is indeed very strong and specific. So he took an oath, pledging kind of loyalty to the union. The doctor also showed me a copy of the oath. Okay, sorry. Uh, he says, he also verbally assured me that he has constantly prayed in church for the president and government, and he's always done so before the present war. In looking over the recitals in your order, I did not see how any of this matters of the prayer, as he states it is negative, negative, nor any violation of the oath's charge, nor, in fact, anything specific and alleged against him. The charges are all general, that he has a rebel wife and rebel relations, that he sympathizes with the rebels, and he exercises rebel influence. Now, after talking with him, I can tell you frankly, I believe he does sympathize with the rebels. But the question remains whether such man of unquestioned good moral character, who has taken such an oath as his, and cannot even be charged of violating it, and who can be charged with another specific acts or omission, can with safety to the government be exiled upon his suspicion of his secret sympathies, end quote. So there's a lot going on here, but essentially Lincoln seems to think he's faking this oath, right? And, you know, how, how are you going to, after the war, determine who honestly gives the oath? Of course, people will give their oath. Uh, doesn't mean deep down they're not sympathizing still with secession or whatever and this on the other hand though you can't be skeptical of every single person right if you don't have evidence even if you think they're suspicious or they have sympathies if they're not actively doing anything that's undermining the war effort what can you do right and this is what lincoln's struggling with with this in this letter to general curtis um now kind of related to this is a letter to john mcclennard another general, which is also kind of on issues of, of reconstruction. And basically it's, 
he talks a little bit about the Emancipation Proclamation, saying, you know, I gave them 100 days to come to terms with this. They didn't stop their resistance. So they have to suffer, you know, the loss of lots of slaves. He writes, they chose to disregard it. And I made a preemptory proclamation on what appeared to me to be military necessity. And being made, it must stand. As to the states not included in it, of course, they can have their rights in the Union as of old. Even the people of the states included, if they choose, need not be hurt by it. Let them adopt systems of apprenticeship for the colored people, conforming substantially to the most approved plans of gen gradual emancipation. And with the aid they can have from this general government, they may be as nearly as well off in this respect, end quote. Um, what he's saying here is he's talking about the places that still have slavery because the Emancipation Proclamation didn't affect the loyalist states. And, you know, he's still saying, well, there's going to, you know, slavery is essentially going to end there, too, at some point. There's going to be gradual emancipation at some point. But he's got this idea of, of, of some kind of internship or apprenticeship, uh, should say apprenticeship programs for, for former slaves. You know, not land reform. He's not talking about land reform, you know. Obviously, he wouldn't say that in terms of the of the border states, uh, and of course, he would die before it really could become an issue for the for the South overall. Um, but notice he doesn't talk about colonization. He's he's kind of dumped that idea of, of colonization, which is good. He doesn't dump it completely. He still talks about it from time to time, but it's not there as strongly as as it was in earlier before the Emancipation Proclamation um, came out. There's an important document here. Uh, dated January 17th, 1863, to the Senate and the House. Basically, it's to it's to Congress, where he basically says, like, you know, about fin the financial issues of how the money is going to be raised for the war. And the argument is essentially that it's going to be, you know, we're going to print this money or we're going to take loans. That there's got to be, there's really going to be no restraint on that. And but he does talk about how Congress has support to regulate currency, but at the same time he's saying, you know. You're gonna you're gonna give this money to me in one way or another. Um, uh, I also really enjoyed this document that he wrote, also in January, uh, a speech he gave to the to the quote, working men of Manchester, England, which is is kind of fascinating. He's not talking to American working men, talking to um, you know I don't think he traveled there. He he wrote in the executive mansion, so like a letter I guess addressed to a union or something in, in Manchester. Now, one problem with this collection is with the letters like this, you don't have the initial letter. Some of the notes do explain a little bit of this, but, but usually not that much. So we have Lincoln's words, but we don't always know the context of Lincoln's words, right? Like with the Lincoln-Douglas debates, we had the back and forth. Always we had Douglas's words, so we knew what Lincoln was responding to. With this, we don't. It seems that the complaint is about like cotton prices or, or the impact uh, on the cotton industry in, in Britain. So he's trying to sell the war to these working class people in, in Manchester, also putting the blame on the South. And he writes this to them. I know and deeply deplore the suffering which the working men of Manchester and all of Europe are called to endure in this crisis. It has been often and studiously represented that the attempt to overthrow this government, which was built upon the foundation of human rights and to substitute for one that should rest on the basis of human slavery, was likely to obtain the favor of Europe. Through the actions of our disloyal citizens, the working men of Europe have been subjected to a severe trial for the purpose of forcing their sanction in that attempt. Under these circumstances, I cannot but regard your decisive utterances upon the question as an instance of sublime Christian heroism, 
which has not been uh, surpassed in any age or in any country. It is indeed an energetic and re-inspiring assurance of the inherent power of truth and the ultimate and universal triumph of justice, humanity, and freedom. End quote. So, yeah, that makes it sound like the original document was, you know, in the context of, of maybe suffering of, of working class people due to, uh, you know, the, the, the cotton industry, the impact of the Civil War on the cotton industry, but at the same time, one supporting Lincoln's efforts. And I think the more we, we, we study this issue, the more we look at things like Marx's letters to Lincoln um, and, and, and some of this other correspondence, you know, that Lincoln was being seen by European kind of working class radicals and socialist movements as someone kind of on the right side of history, right? I don't think, unfortunately, we don't have like the Marx letters that Lincoln wrote to Marx here, but there's a whole book about this. There's, a, there's some YouTube videos you can look up too, which talk about like the relationship between Lincoln and, and Marx. That's kind of interesting, but, but here we see some of this idea that there's a consciousness of a, of a broader kind of dignity of work kind of narrative that that the Republicans in North America found, had allies among working class people in, in Europe. Now, early, these documents from early 1863, there's, there's not much about military Affairs. We do have the letter, though, that appoints Joseph Hooker. Ho Hooker will be the C Union commander of, of the Army of the Potomac during the Chancellorsville campaign, which is a, a failure. And then he'd be replaced later by, by George Meade, uh, who would be in command at the Battle of Gettysburg. And I think he would remain basically in, in command throughout the war. Grant would take a, like a, like direct the whole, all the armies. Um, but, you know, it, he's kind of like the real leader of, of the, the Eastern campaigns. But Meade, I think, is still in head of the form of the army. I don't, I don't remember the, the details, but I, that's, that sounds right to me. Um, a bigger issue that, that Lincoln's dealing with or something he's thinking more about is, is kind of the politics of this. And so you have the, like the midterm elections uh, have already passed, right? So... Yeah, so you have the elections in 1860 and then 1862, yeah, so you would have, you know, new politicians, right? So that's the first sign that there was growing kind of a growing peace party and that the Democratic Party was getting some resurgence, right? And part of this was evidenced by the emergence of, of some, like, Democratic governors. One of these was Horatio Seymour, governor of New York. Now, New York was a center of a lot of uh, nativist, uh, not not kind of pro-Confederate thought, but peace peace Democrats, right? Um, and Horatio Seymour seemed to be on that side. So Lincoln has to deal with these people, right, and make sure they continue to send troops, send money, and don't let their their support of peace interfere with the war effort. So he writes them a nice little letter, saying, you know. I'm the head of this nation, which is in great peril. You are the head of the greatest state of that nation. As to maintaining the nation's life and integrity, I assume and I believe there cannot be a difference of purpose between me and you. If we should differ as to means, it's important that that should be as small as possible. Right? So it's a, it's a kind of a letter where he's reaching out his, his hand to uh, this Horatio Seymour. But I think he realizes that there's a danger in the emergence of these democratic peace candidates in the north and that's a lot of, of of his kind of political 
messaging during this time is defending the Emancipation Proclamation on the grounds of military necessity, not on racial justice. Um, and then kind of making sure that as these politicians from the Peace Party get more powerful, that it doesn't interfere overall with the war effort, right? Um, he's got a very, very interesting letter here to Andrew Johnson um, about raising black troops. This is before Andrew Johnson is the is the uh, vice president, right? Um, that'd be in the second term. He, he actually, he says, when I speak of your position, I mean that of an eminent citizen of a slave state and himself a slaveholder. The colored population is a great available and yet unavailed of force for restoring the Union. The bare sight of 50,000 armed and drilled black soldiers on the banks of the Mississippi would end the rebellion at once. And who doubts that we can present that sight if we but take hold of it in earnest, end quote. So he's writing this to a, a slaveholder, essentially a, a unionist pro-slavery politician saying, you know, imagine how revolutionary mobilizing these black troops could be. Kind of a, 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 an interesting document and just the imagery here he uses, I think, is, is very powerful. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, a speech to the Indian chiefs in Washington. I'm going to come back to the question of, of the Indians here. This speech itself isn't too particularly interesting where he's just kind of trying to keep the Indians at least neutral in, in the war, you know. You know what I'm saying? We're, we want peace with you and all that. This is not really your fight. Uh, there's, of course, a larger context here, and that is the expansion of empire during the, the years of the Civil War, um, and especially in the years after it, it accelerates. So we need, we need to keep this in mind, that, that the U.S. empire, United, I, I've said it throughout this series on American political writing, the U.S. was an empire from the beginning. Uh, Jefferson acquired territory um, from another empire, buying it. And then with that, acquired all of this territory that was controlled by, by Native American people. And that empire never slowed down. Even a civil war didn't slow down that empire. In fact, if anything, the civil war over, you know, during the civil war, you saw some of the biggest gains of that empire and things like the Homestead Act, which, which gave a bunch of land to the railroads, which would, you know, exploit the West and, and farmers who wanted to exploit the West. And all this at the expense of, of Indians, obviously. Um, oh, jumping ahead to June 9. Did I miss anything? No. Um, not much I want to talk about in May, but um, June 9. He writes a very short, just like a note. It's not even a letter to, to, Mary, to Mary Todd. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. Just two sentences. You th I think you better put Ted's pistol away. I had an ugly dream about him. And cool, which is... Rather fascinating. I mean, I wonder what that dream was, but he's he's afraid that he, of, of that gun. Um, there's some superstition here in Lincoln. We know he was depressed, especially early in his life. And actually, I think he dealt with it through. I haven't said much about it, but there hasn't been that many, not that much evidence that he, he you know, of, of depression in these public documents. But, you know, a bit of superstition, not to be, you know, not surprising. Now, he, he writes around the same time as that, he writes to Joseph Hooker, who still is commander of the Union Army, and this is after that defeat at Chancellorville. That was in May, right? So the, the army is still reeling from that, but Lincoln's idea, and it has been really consistent from 1862 on, is you put pressure on, on the Confederate Army, right? You know, we, have, we, we might lose a battle, but we're going to win the war by, by wearing down their ability to fight, right? You know, they can't afford the losses, uh, you know, if you put enough pressure on, we could destroy the army 
entirely. And that's what that's what Grant's going to do, right? We'll talk about this probably in the next episode is how Grant could lose a battle, but he would just continue to march forward closer to Richmond, right? Forcing the, the Confederate Army to meet him farther south. I mean, that, that strategy worked quite effectively in the overland campaign of, of the summer of 1864. Um, he's pushing Hooker to do that. And I, I think it's that the winning strategy was something Lincoln was pushing from the beginning is, you know, I, I think, you know, Lincoln did have some military intuition, even if he wasn't of the military. I mean, he served for a while in the Black Hawk War or whatever. But uh, here's what he writes to Joseph Hooker. This is after a defeat, like a month after a defeat of a major battle, one of the bloodiest in the war. He says, uh, your long dispatch of today is just received. If left to me, I would not go south of the Rappahannock upon Lee's moving north of it. If you had Richmond invested today, you would not be able to take it in 20 days. Meanwhile, your communications with you and your army would be ruined. I think Lee's army and not Richmond is your true objective point. If he comes towards the upper Potomac, follow on his flank and on the inside track, shortening your lines. While he lengthens it, fight him when the opportunity offers. If he stays where he is, fret him and fret him. Right, that's essentially the whole letter, but it's it's just keep putting pressure on on, on Lee's army, right? And, and again, that's that's what sort of worked in 1864 in in putting the final military blow to the Army of Northern Virginia. Maybe the, some of the more important documents from this section of of the book were they're both written in June of 1863. One is to a man named Erastus Corning, but it's essentially directed to to a whole pu- a bunch of people who were at a public meeting, Democrats, essentially, Peace Democrats in Albany. And then there was another one that followed that up to Ohio Democrats. And these two documents, you know, both give, I think, his, his most detailed, you know, discussion of the constitutionality of the war, constitutionality of fighting for union, the unconstitutionality of secession, and defending another emancipation proclamation. I mean, I think you got to look at these documents together, and together they, they do kind of make that formal case of, of, of the constitutionality of the war effort in response to the criticisms of these of these peace Democrats. Now, what it boils down to, you know, is I mean, I think to some degree he he feels he's made the case already on secession, uh, the illegitimacy of secession. But the bigger issue coming up with the, that the war Democrats are complaining about is the constitutionality of of the measures Lincoln embraces to win the war, things like suspending habeas corpus or the Emancipation Proclamation, or or other things that the Peace Democrats said you know are overreaches. And the heart of Lincoln's argument in these two documents uh, is that the war makes it, or the Constitution makes a distinction between the powers of the president in war and in peace, right? By making the president commander-in-chief, this somehow enhance, this, in, this entails the president with certain powers during wartime that they wouldn't necessarily have at peacetime, right? And that's how he justifies doing these things. The way he says it to the Ohio Democrats is, is, quote, you claim that men may, if they choose, embarrass those whose duty it is to combat a giant rebellion and then be dealt with in turn only as if there was no rebellion. The Constitution itself rejects this view. The military arrests and detentions which have been made, including those of, of whatever. Um, well, anyways, he, he's saying here, he's got some details that aren't important. What he's saying here is the Constitution makes a clear distinction between constitutional 
presidential powers in wartime or time of rebellion and in times of peace. Right? I'm not a constitutional expert, but it's these are nice letters. I think they're important letters that kind of form core the, the heart of his argument about why he was able to do things like the Emancipation Proclamation and like the suspension of habeas corpus. And, you know, and it's that the Constitution makes an exception to certain limitations on presidential power in the time of war. That's why the Constitution made the president the commander in chief. Um, yeah, one, one more before getting to the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, there was this there was this disastrous battle in the Gettysburg campaign they called the Second Battle of Winchester, in which um, a commander Robert Milroy, with four thousand Union troops, thought he could hold off something like sixty thousand Confederate troops, and and the result of the battle was basically the surrender the surrender of like those four thousand Union troops, um, a major blow to to the Union manpower. At the time, and remember that many of those people who went to Confederate prison camps died. I think 40,000 of Union deaths were were in Confederate, you know, POW camps. Um, but anyways, this guy Robert Milroy was in fired, and Lincoln writes him this letter, you know, explaining why he was fired. And it's I don't know what the letter that Milroy wrote initially that incited Lincoln's response, but Lincoln's response is very brutal actually and i i like that he's he's not overly cruel or, or vindictive about it. he just says like you lost a battle you were stupid and yeah you're gonna pay for it we'll find a job for you at some point but it's you know this had to be done someone had to take the blame for it and i think that was part of the advantage the union had was was lincoln's willingness to to can commanders or move them around or you know manage who was in charge right the Confederate generals were aristocrats. They had a, you know, they had clout, and they couldn't be so easily moved around. Now, as for July eighteen sixty-three, obviously we have the victories at Vicksburg and Gettysburg as the the central events of that. We don't have too many documents. I don't think we have anything here actually that speaks to Lincoln's thinking during the battle itself. Unfortunately, I would love just to see what he was writing or thinking about or, or whatever during the battles itself. It was a three-day battle, so he must have known it was going on, but we don't get anything. Really what this editor focuses on is Lincoln's frustration in the month following the Battle of Gettysburg at the refusal of his commanders, uh, people like um, Meade. He writes a lot of letters to Henry Halleck. Henry Halleck at this time was the general who was essentially in charge of all the armies. Um, under kind of under un, he was like the intermediary between the commanders and, and Lincoln in some ways I don't, I don't quite know how it worked but he was like the the general that was kind of in charge of over all the other generals kind of an administrator type and he writes a lot of letters to Halleck saying you know like why don't you you know destroy Lincoln Lee's army you know Lee's on his run he's fleeing the north you know, he's got those long supply routes. If you just put pressure on him, you can maybe destroy the whole army and end the war. And you see this frustration in document, letter after letter to different people. He scolds uh, George Meade on July 14th, 10 days after Gettysburg, writing, Again, my dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and you have closed upon him, and to have closed upon him in connection with our other late successes, 
have, would have ended the war. It, as it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not attack Lee last Monday, how could you possibly do so south of the river when you could take him with the, with you very few more than two-thirds of the forces that you have on hand? It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect that you can affect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I'm distressed immeasurably because of it. Right, so it's uh, after the the fact kind of armchair generaling, perhaps, but but Lincoln really seemed to believe that there was an opportunity to destroy entirely Lee's army, and I think there's probably something to that. In contrast to that, we have uh, Lee's or sorry Lincoln's uh, very congratulatory letter to to Grant for his success in the in the campaign of Vicksburg, and of course because of that he's gonna Grant's gonna be elevated to overall commander. All right. Um, to Joseph Holt, I guess he's a commander. This is a letter to Joseph Holt, really a telegram, I guess. It's only got a few words. It says, let him fight instead of being shot. This, this is the common uh, kind of response to some of these uh, deserters being you know, sentenced to death, right? Lincoln pardoned a lot of them, you know, kind of on this rationale that, well, if you can still get them to fight, it's better to have them fight than to, to just shoot them and waste a life, right? And of course, that's we've seen that, you know, Lincoln wasn't skittish about executing people. He executed 40 uh, Lakota uh, Sioux Indians during the Dakota Wars. Less than were originally going to be executed, but still quite a lot. Biggest mass execution in American history on a single day. Um, you know, the, that slave trader we talked about in the last episode. So, yeah, he would execute people, but he did pardon a lot of deserters. And this seems to be a case like that. Um, oh, one last thing. The Order of Retaliation. This is an important document. It's, it was signed July 30th, 1863. And it's an executive order. And it's a, it's a threat that, that wasn't really applied fully. But it, it deals with war crimes and it deals with um, a growing problem in in the recruit that came out of the recruitment of black soldiers right is that the confederates had a certain a special policy towards captured black soldiers and and often there were cases like i think it was called the four pillow massacre led by future grand wizard of the kkk nathan bedford Forrest. he just executed a bunch of captured black soldiers um, or more commonly, captured black soldiers would be re-enslaved, right? If they were slaves before, they'd be put into slavery. So the act of retaliation is a response to both of these trends, both the, the, the moving these people into, in, re, you know, re-enslaving them or just killing them. And the order of retaliation says, if you kill a colored soldier, we'll kill a Confederate POW, right? If you enslave a one of a, a black union soldier we're going to put one of your prisoners of wars to, to hard labor until until that situation is rectified now i guess that happened for some i i don't know and i looked this up i didn't it didn't seem to be any cases of this retaliation in terms of executions taking place but it did show that lincoln was was taking seriously uh, and and aware of of the special risk that black soldiers were taking by serving in the army. And, and Lincoln did what he could, and maybe it wasn't enough, but he was doing a little bit to help protect them. All right, now, now let's look at another one of the documents that 
that really is Lincoln responding to some of these political emerging political enemies, right? And and really the the target of these peace Democrats is you know that Lincoln's not doing enough to to pursue peace, that he's kind of overstepping his authority as president, and you know, and that the Emancipation Proclamation was was essentially an overreach as well. And so this is a letter to a guy James C. Conkling, and he makes a really I think practical defense of the Emancipation Proclamation, basically saying it works and there's nothing you can do about it, which I which I appreciate. He's he's not he's not being too lawyer lawyerly, you know, with his response. He says he wrote, but the proclamation as law is either valid or it's not valid. If it is not valid, it needs no retraction. If it is valid, it cannot be retracted any more than the dead can be brought to life. Some of you profess to think its retraction would operate favorably for the Union. Why better after the retraction than before the issue? There was more than a year and a half of trial to suppress the rebellion before the proclamation issued. The last hundred days of which had passed under explicit notice that it was coming unless averted by those in revolt returning to their allegiance. The war has certainly progressed as favorable for us since the issue of the proclamation than before. I know as fully as one can know the opinion of others that some commanders in our field who have given us our most important successes believe the emancipation policy, the use of colored troops, constitute the heaviest blow yet dealt to the rebellion and that at least one of those important successes could not have been achieved when it was but for the aid of black soldiers. Among the com commanders holding these views are some who have never had any affinity with what is called abolitionism or with Republican Party politics but who hold them purely as military opinions. And it's largely along this lines that he defends it. Um, again, he, he's still avoiding getting in bed with the abolitionists. Uh, something he was very careful to do throughout his political career, but you know, focusing on military necessity is his is his main argument on the constitutionality of of the proclamation. Um, what else here? Um, yeah, so many interesting documents in there. There's there's too many to talk about. Um, you know, my notes here are pretty extensive. Oh, here, here's one I definitely want to talk about is, is his opinion on the draft. This is important. Uh, in the summer of 1863, there were draft riots in New York, right, where you had a, a major re rebellion, essentially a rebellion in New York over, draft, over the draft, uh, where working class people resisted it. Now, the problem, the main sticking point with the draft was the substitution policy. And this basically meant that, you know, so in the way it worked in the South was if you had like 20 slaves, you wouldn't be drafted, the argument being you had to stay there to control the slaves or something, right? Really, it was so the rich wouldn't have to die. Um, the, in the North, it worked out that if you could pay $300, you could get a replacement. Now, $300 was like a fairly high wage for like a workman. So you may think, well, that's not so much, but how many of you can put together like a year's salary to, to avoid the draft, right? Um, basically, and Lincoln acknowledges that in this document that certainly the draft is is giving special exemption to to rich people. And I don't think his defense of it is is very good, but he did put a lot of thought into it. The document itself is you know, several pages. It, it's it's not for public reading. The the document it was his jotting down his kind of struggling with the draft itself, written sometime in September of eighteen sixty three. So a few months after the draft riots in New York. He's had time to think about it, but you can tell he's kind of struggling with this. And he knows it's unequal, right? He, he even acknowledges 
The $300 provision objected is not being objected to because of its unconstitutionality, but for inequality, the favoring of the rich against the poor. The substitution of men is the provision, if any, which favors the rich to the exclusion of the poor. And this being the provision in accordance with an old and well-known practice in the raising of armies is not objected to. There would be a great objection if that provision had been omitted. And yet being in, the money provision really modifies the inequality with which others the other introduces. It allows men to escape service who are too poor to escape, but for it. Without the money provision, competition among the more wealthy might, and probably would, raise the price of substitutes above $300, thus leaving the man who could only raise $300 no escape from personal service. Um, his equivocation here is that there's going to be some substitution policy. It's unavoidable. I don't know why, that, you know, but I guess you could just look at the history of the draft and say it's always been about inequality and always been about making wars poor men's fights. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it seems he's over, he's trying to, he's trying a little bit too hard here to justify it. His argument being that if we don't set it at 300, the market will set it at, at 800 or a thousand or something. And then it'll be even more difficult for working people to avoid it. This, this, at this level, there's a little bit more fairness in the system, which, um, yeah, I don't agree with, but, um, you know, he, he's, he's basically saying the draft's always been there and it's necessary and this inequality is almost unavoidable. And, and he argues around it quite a lot. Here he is being kind of lawyery, to be honest. Uh, but I think it's important to look at this document to think about um, just in the context of growing hostility about the war, right? He, he, he went into the election just a year after that really anxious about his, his being reelected. Um, he didn't think he would win the election. He, he thought that he, he, so his response here to these peace Democrats, to these other questions about the war are coming out of a, a space of, of quite a lot of fear and his fear about what would happen to the war if, if, he, if he was defeated. All right, let's just let's just jump to the Gettysburg Address, November 19, 1863. It's only three paragraphs. It only takes a couple minutes to read, I think three, four minutes, maybe. Very, very short. I think the speech that preceded it was like a couple hours and, and Lincoln's was only um, was was quite short. Of course, it's one of the most important and memorable. It's, it's the kind of thing kids have to memorize in schools. Um, unfortunately, as, as great as I think this address is, I don't think we should be forcing kids to, to memorize anything um, necessarily. But, you know, I, I pretty much know this by heart, I have to say. Maybe, maybe I, you know, I, if I was on Jeopardy, I couldn't, or if I was on a game show, I couldn't recite it word for word. But, you know, I, I basically know it. Uh, the one major interpretation of this is that this is modeled off of Pericles' speech from the Peloponnesian War, and that you kind of start with, um, the tradition 
right? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. Followed up, like Pericles, and followed this up with uh, the war and the loss and the, and the, and the, and the death and, and the sacrifice, right? And then so the way Lincoln says it in this speech is we're engaged in this great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived can long endure. And much of the speech deals with the, the sacrifice, right? His famous line here is that we can't, no one's going to remember what we say here, but what the soldiers did will be remembered throughout history. Right. So in the same way, Pericles focuses the middle part of the speech on, on the sacrifice of the soldiers. And then the third part of Pericles speech is kind of then to to reinforce and build on the values of of the of, of Greek democracy. For Lincoln here, the way he says it, it's very succinctly. It is rather for us to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these men shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that's the key line, right? That, that new birth of freedom is what is often looked at as such radical, so radical about this. If you take that out, this just becomes just yet another speech praising the, the sacrifice of, of loyal men, and 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 sanctifying their sacrifice in some way for for the for the nation but he says it's not just for the survival of that government but rather for this new birth of freedom right he doesn't go on with what that means he kind of leaves that open but in the context of of the emancipation proclamation and the mobilizing of black troops and, and things like that it's it's clear that that new birth of freedom is you know partially at least washing away that that sin, original sin of the nation that original sin of slavery and he ties that then to the endurance of the nation of course in the last line of the gettysburg address that the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth he ties these two things together the revolution and the persistence of government right so often we think of revolutions as destructive forces right and and that's why maybe people are uncomfortable talking about the civil war as a revolution i'm, I'm less uncomfortable doing that but as in Lincoln's mind here, a revolution need not be destructive to this, this, this government or this ideal of, of America or this, even this constitution. Right? And that kind of sets the conversation to, to be that about reconstruction. What will that new birth of freedom actually look like? The fact that the U.S. more or less botched it um, is is besides the point at this at this at this point in the story um hopefully we'll i think in the last episode in this series i'll have more time to maybe talk about reconstruction um there is though by by the way lincoln did give a speech in 1863 on reconstruction um a, called the proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction um, dated yeah the 8th of december 8th of december 1863 um and yeah, it's pretty soft. So first he sort of here sort of defines who is, who's like just prima facie sort of redeemable, right? Are there certain people above certain ranks who, who are gonna have to face some punishment or, or be scrutinized a little bit more, right? It's at one point, if you aided rebellion, those who engage in any way in treating colored persons or white persons in charge of such, otherwise than those lawful prisoners of war. There are certain exceptions, but largely what it comes down to is in the states, and he lists them all, the Confederate states. Um, if at least 10% of the people cast a vote in such a state, 
10% of the people who voted in the 1860 election um, take an oath. That's enough, right? The famous 10% rule is established here. And he actually gives what that oath will be. Still, I don't know. And Lincoln knows that you can't, the oath itself doesn't guarantee loyalty. He dealt with that in a letter we talked about in the beginning of this episode. You know, he, he certainly is aware that people can be pro-secessionist, pro pro-confederate, and still give the speech, give the oath. Um, people lie all the time about this kind of thing. You know, so it, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things, you know, if, if Lincoln had not been assassinated, had he really led Reconstruction, what would that have looked like? What would that alternative history have been? Could, you know, it was one thing for the Republicans to fight tooth and nail against Andrew Johnson, right? A, a, a slaveholder, you know, someone who's put on the ticket to, to kind of be a symbol of, of kind of national unity. Uh, one of those unionist Demo Democrat. I think he was a Democrat, right? Do you know impeaching him, fighting him, you know, sidelining him for Reconstruction is one thing. Doing that to Lincoln, could they have done that to Lincoln? Uh, would we have had the Fourteenth Amendment had had Lincoln lived? I, you know, it's I don't know how we would have responded to the black codes, how we would have responded to the 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 the, the, the sluggishness of social reform in the south um, i don't know it's it's something i really um, think about sometimes but anyways that's an important document from here and then finally we have the annual message to congress and there's a lot of interesting things in this annual message things that maybe didn't come up in the other documents um, and i just mentioned five things i just wrote down five things here one is he he talks a little bit about nationalization and and the, and policies for immigration, and he's, you know, he's aware that people are coming into this country, and of course, some of them he wants to serve. Um, now, part of his concern too is is getting these people to serve in the military. That if they do get nat people do get naturalized, that they're going to be obliged to serve if they vote, if they participate in. In American democracy, they're going to have to fight to defend it. So there's a little bit of a conversation here about um, the wartime policy of, of, of nationality and, and citizenship. Uh, we have a bunch here. Two, actually, two issues are tied together. In fact, Lincoln talks about them together. So he's aware that these are tied together. And that is the Homestead Act, which, he, which has been passed in 1863, and he talks about how much land has already been given. So even though the war is being fought, you're having these people moving west, taking advantage of the Homestead Act. And then very, like, basically the next paragraph, he mentions Indian removal and, you know, tribes being removed farther west. So obviously these things are tied together, right? Federal lands given to these settlers was tied intimately to this violence against Indian sovereignty, which took place, you know, in the years during the Civil War and after. And Lincoln's fully on board these. Maybe I can find the, the quote here. Um, yeah, the measures provided at your last session for the removal of certain Indian tribes has been carried into effect. Sundry treaties have been negotiated, which will in due time be submitted for their constitutional action in the Senate. They contain stipulations for extinguishing the possessory rights of the Indians to large and valuable tracts of land. It is hoped that the effect of these treaties will result in the establishment of permanent friendly relations with such of those tribes as have been 
brought into frequent and bloody collusion with our outlying settlements and emigrants. Yep. Sorry to say, he's a full-blown imperialist, unredeemable imperialist, but all U.S. presidents were. Um, he talks a little bit about recruitment of uh, black soldiers here and, and, and getting congressional support and, and you know, informing them about that. And he also talks a little bit about, about Reconstruction as well. So it's a, it's a good State of the Union for, for understanding Lincoln's thinking in 1863. It's, um, and it's already looking beyond the war. It's not just about the war. It's got other issues involved, international relations, uh, naturalization of, of foreigners, the Homestead Act, Indian removal, things like that, and looking forward to, to Reconstruction. Um, so that's going to do it for, for this episode, for this, this period. A, a lot of important topics, obviously, when we look at, at, at 1863. Uh, the next episode, obviously, 1864. Um, so that's going to be the bulk of the rest of this collection, to be honest. For you know, Lincoln didn't live that long into 1865. I will have a separate episode for that, but it's only about 20, no, a little bit more, 35 pages of documents from 1865, but one of those is very important. One of those is the second inaugural address. Of course, a very beautiful piece of writing, um, but it'll give me time to kind of wrap things up. So that'll be two episodes from now. The next episode will be 1864. So like, we'll, we'll see what is, what's on Lincoln's mind, what are his major issues, uh, what's going on in the war effort in that, that final year of the war. I'm, I'm, well, the final full year of the war, I should say. Uh, you know, what's his interaction with Grant, U.S. Grant? That's a big thing to, for us to think about. So anyways, that's coming. That's that's looking ahead. Now, as for 1863, if you have any of your own opinions about Lincoln's leadership in those those that year or any thoughts about some of these issues we talked about, such as empire, such as treatment of black soldiers, the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation, the struggle with the, the peace Democrats. Right. And of course, that's going to obviously carry on into the election campaign of 64. You know, if you have any thoughts about any of that stuff, please leave your thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, so that's it for now. I look forward to, to wrapping up the series in the next two episodes. So thanks for bearing with me as I explore the writings of Abraham Lincoln and other dead white men. Um, yeah, I'll see you shortly. Our railmaker statesman can do the people are everywhere calling for Lincoln and Liberty too. Then up with a banner so glorious, the star-spangled red, white, and blue. We'll fight till our battle.